0: welcome to KnitCast with me Marie Urshad. My special guest for this edition is the designer Mags Candice. Her latest book is called Gifted, Lovely Things to Knit and Crochet and that's out today. Hello Mags, thank you very much for joining us for this interview. Hi Marie. Hello and Mags tell me a bit more about the book and how it began.
1: Well I guess all of us have this constant want to make little things for friends and for babies, and there's always an opportunity for little gifts to be made. And I think these days, with so much ready-made stuff available, there's sort of a, a fight against that, and that sort of love of making things, and that's what I've been doing for quite a few years, It's just making things for friends, and when I was given an opportunity through Interweave Press to create a new book, I thought, well, what better idea to do? Do then build a book on things I love doing, which is small, simple, heartfelt gifts.
0: What makes the ideal gift, do you think? You've already said about it being small and heartfelt.
1: I think number one, anything made, whether it be sewn or cooked or knit or crocheted, is the important thing. And I think just anything bright and cheerful, a little bit of whimsical, nothing too serious. And that's what a lot of these projects in Gifted has. It's just a little bit of whimsy to it. You don't want to be giving someone a a big sweater or something that makes such a fashion statement. You may disappoint them. It's really hard to judge people's taste. But little egg cozies or scissor sleeves or um, a little gift for a baby is always well received, I think.
0: I must say, I don't normally tend to like tea cozies, but yours is really, it's ribbed. It looks just quite jolly. And it's got this, I know that you do quite like some motifs, which can also be used on some of your other gifts in the book, because it's got a, a drawstring with a sort of a felted disc display mm-hmm. it. Where did that sort of idea come from?
1: Well, the, the tea cozy itself is very simple. It just reminds me of a, a rib turtleneck sweater. That was basically the inspiration for that. I agree with you, tea cozies are not something that usually catch my eye because I find that they're either a bit too twee or a bit too over the top and I just wanted something really simple and very modern in its shape but I chose a very cheery color it's a very deep orange color and the fob or the tie is what I think really makes it and it's a little felted disc with a bit of embroidery on it and I use a very simple swirl motif which I like but I also mentioned in the book that you can put someone's initials on it and um, I do like the felted bit with it because it's a nice juxtaposition between the the mohair that's used for the cozy and then the very soft plain felted alpaca on this sort of uh, contrast piece.
0: Yeah it's a really nice contrast and I I love the fact that you've based it basically around a, a neck sweater. It's not the sort of thing that I suppose that people would associate with a tea cozy. And it does just look fabulous. And thinking about some of the other felted motifs, there's also the, one of the ones that I'm, I'm thinking of now is your felted leaf brooch, which you also use as an accessory on one of the uh, other patterns.
1: Yeah, the leaf was a, a, a very simple shape to be able to do in a garter stitch, which I love doing for that brooch. And it was just sort of an afterthought. I had leftover bits of alpaca when completing a a project. And I loved the way alpaca felt. So this is two pieces of of felting in the book that had alpaca. But it was just a really simple way of using up the uh, bits and bobs of uh, a project. And I loved also being able to do the embroidery on top of it. I think putting felting and embroidery together makes me happy. And it's a very simple way of personalizing something as simple as a leaf-shaped... uh, accessory.
0: Something else that strikes me about the book, they are small projects, but there are also projects which you can use with any sort of little leftovers of yarn, like the colorful crochet flowers, which look so pretty. Is that something that you've tended to make anyway, rather than, I suppose, designing it specially for the book?
1: Definitely. those. I've been making those um, variations of those flowers for years and years as little gifts. They started off as bookmarks, and then I've made them to tie around the top of a jam jar whenever I give someone some something that I've put up. And going back to the idea of using bits and pieces, I think one of the things when you're trying to put together a gift, it's usually last minute, and you're digging around your own stash. You don't necessarily have time to go to the shop and buy some new yarn for a new specific project. So in Gifted, there are quite a few pieces. Um, that are done with what you can find already in your yarn basket. Because it could be that tomorrow morning you might have to be somewhere and you're going, oh, I need to bring something. And here's an opportunity to use up the ends of something and to create something new and wonderful to go.
0: The paper roses, which I love because you you came up with that idea because you couldn't find any bows. You were looking for a bow to put on a present and decided to to make these knit roses from a, a paper yarn.
1: Exactly, that, there's, the, there's a perfect example right there of last minute you have to pull something together and you just go into your stash, whether it be a basket or you're, if you're lucky enough to have a closet or even a room with all your crafting goods to go in and dig around. Though so I must say I have a pretty lovely stash, so <laughs> I can dig around quite well. I can't complain about having a lack of lovely yarns to work with, so I am spoiled that way. But I think if everyone looks at their stash, They'll be re-inspired by catching, you know, uh, flipping through gifts and seeing what can be done with your stash. Sometimes you just look at your little bits of yarn and go, well, there's nothing can come of it. But like you said before, the the crocheted flowers, perfect example of taking three bits of coloured yarn and putting it into something new and lovely.
0: And the, the cheerful EMFs are so pretty. And I know that you used, well, you recycled a frame from some fake furry earmuffs but these are just gorgeous because they've got little flowers or days which are they're actually crocheted which are sort of go around these sort of headband part of it and it's just such a pretty way of making earmuffs just really pretty and with also a little sort of gathering of a little sort of bunch of the flowers as well on one side of the muff
1: Well, I live in a world where you're using earmuffs a good three months to (laughs) see here, or you've got chronic half-head. So I am a big earmuff wearer, and as the pattern said, and as you noted, it was an old pair of very tacky, I think it was leopard earmuffs that had (laughs) them many years ago, and they just kicked around my studio for the longest time, and I finally went, something's going to be done. So I whipped up a pair for myself, and then, when the gift came along as a book opportunity, I sort of retweeted it and made it really fun. And you were saying to me, there's little, I call them danglies. they're little dangly flowers that come off one side. And they really are to bring joy. And it's, I think, a really great way of keeping someone's ears warm and telling them that you care about them.
0: Yeah, and they're just, it's just so pretty with those little flowers. It really strikes me. In the, the pattern, well, in the um, illustration in the book they're all in one colour, but I suppose you could do those flowers in different colours if you wanted them to stand out for some particular reason, couldn't you? But it's just so pretty.
1: Oh, definitely. One thing I always say with anything that I design, I don't really want to see a carbon copy of what I've made. I'd love seeing the, the, the maker make that project their own by doing whatever they want. There's wonderful the places on the internet right now where you can see how people... Translate patterns that are out there and I think that's the most inspiring thing.
0: Yes. Is that Ravelry you're talking about? Yeah,
1: I love seeing how people retranslate what I've designed. I mean, it just boggles the mind how creative knitters are out there.
0: It's also really inspiring as well if you're thinking of knitting a pattern to see what other people have done it done with it because you, you may have your own ideas which you're kind of thinking, well, how would that work out? But it's also, it's just great to see what other people have done as well, because you might think, oh, I didn't think, oh, you know, I hadn't thought about doing that. And then that sort of encourages you to do something different again.
1: Exactly. And another thing is yarn choices. We don't all have the same access to the same yarn. So seeing how people so problem solve by using the yarns that they can readily get in their area. It's wonderful to see how the projects get retranslated that way. Also,
0: I don't know if I'm going to mispronounce this one, but I was wondering if you could tell me about the modern mangas. Is it mangas?
1: It, I think it is. I, my, <laughs> Spanish is not my second language. I'm trying, but it's, it's not. I'm not familiar, but it is manga. Yes, that's one of my favorite projects. Personally, I'm a real big user of arm warmers and scarves and any sort of extremity extremity warmer. I'm right up there. But I love designing those because, as I said earlier, you don't necessarily have the time, nor do you want to make the commitment of making an entire sweater for someone because of taste issues or sizing issues. This way, the mangas are just basically leg warmers for the arms. They are, manga is sleeve in Spanish. And as the book also says, it's um, in the Andes. They wear these these wonderful arm warmers over their clothing to keep them warm. And I didn't see a reason why, why we can't have them here, you know, anywhere that's not a, a mountain climate. So it was a wonderful way of sort of the feral patterning in lovely colors. I love the color choices that I was allotted for this. And uh, making them wonderful, wonderful little arm warmers and dressing them up with more embroidery, which I love also the time.
0: Well, they're very colorful in the photograph, and I think they're also good for if somebody perhaps hasn't tried color work before. I think it might, you know, it might be quite a nice project to introduce them to that as well.
1: Probably for working in color work and in, in the round, so they'd be able to work any sort of round color work, um, stranded knitting project after that. It would be a wonderful idea.
0: Now, another pattern, which I know you've made the pattern available for free on your blog, is the bevy of bangles. That is one of my favorite
1: all-time gift ideas. Um, I started making them about two years ago, and it was for Christmas gifts. I just pulled out all my little scraps of bulky weight yarn and started knitting them up. And I thought it was a wonderful way of using up odds and odds once again. And I remember the first time I made just the prototype for myself. I went out and I was doing, you know, I went and did my errands. I was at the bank and I was at the grocery store. And everywhere I went, people were going, love those, love those. And I was like, okay, maybe I should make bunches of them and give them away. And it was wonderful. I was sitting with a bunch of girlfriends and I just put them in the middle of of the table and everyone just started grabbing at different, different color combinations. And it was quite like a little feeding frenzy. So I was really happy that, that you were able to give that pattern over for free and it was available originally on uh, Knitting Daily, uh, the TV show, and then also on the Knitting Daily um, website
0: it was uh, released and now it's also
1: available here on my blog.
0: Baby's First Felted Feet, now those are adorable.
1: Yeah, they are and I just love, once again, I'm using alpaca. If anyone has never felted with alpaca, because it makes mm. the most soft and silky and and exquisite felted textile. And I just as soon as I had the felted alpaca in my hand, I went, "These are booties. These have to be booties at some point." And I enjoyed making the, the felted ones for the book and using a little bit of needle felting just for adornment on it, and then a little bit of uh, embroidery with French knots. But once again. In the book, there's a lot of little bits of embellishment that can be done to a project. And needle belting is a fabulous way of making things look very special. And it's very simple. And these are just little dots that you're making little, I call it Susie, and it's very Dr. Seuss-like, these mm-hmm. little slippers. And it's a great way of practicing your needle belting and just making a, a really adorable pair of foot warmers for a baby.
0: Some of the projects are very versatile in that they can be used in, in a range of sort of gifts or to accentuate another gift. And I do love the, the little felted hearts, which I think the, the, the felted hearts, is it Milagros?
1: Milagros, which are, um, once again, it's a Spanish word. Mm. And it is little, um, it's little like good luck, little things that are just blessings. So with the um, with the salted Milagras they're little hearts. They are just a little gift that can be given and they really have no other purpose but that they're just a heartfelt gift. And once again it's a great way of using just grams, a few grams of yarn and a little bit of stuffing. And I also I don't consider myself a very clever knitter. There's like Designers out there that come up with clever ideas of how they approach things. I'm more driven by color and by texture, and I have to say, these Malabras, when I first came up with the pattern, I thought they were knit. So interestingly, I, I just patted myself on the back, which is seldom what I do when I'm, I'm designing. But they're very, they're knit in a very interesting way that makes them very easy to create and very fun to sell, and they're all in one piece with one small simple seam and that's it so the shaping is very very easy
0: they're a really pleasing shape while felted as well I mean I know there are various styles of hearts but they're just really pleasing and rounded there's a sort of naturalness to them
1: and uh, they do that all on their own when you wash them and I've made really large ones yeah uh, with very bulky yarn and uh, on my blog I actually have one that I showed I made a little um, it's a door hanger yeah that says shush on it and I, I put it on my office door when i wanted not be disturbed so it's a wonderful big red puffy heart with shush on it.
0: i think i suppose you could perhaps make a really big one and have it as a cushion
1: oh i'd love to see it if that shows up on ravelry i'll be so
0: happy <laughs> I'm just looking at one of the ideas in the book is to make a door hanger with, I think it's about five of them in different shades, sort of spaced apart with sort of little silver beads, which again is just a really pretty idea.
1: It was, once again, that was like an afterthought for the whole book. There was a bit of an issue. There wasn't filling enough pages at one point because I was doing lots of projects, but they were all very small and they weren't taking up much space. And it was like, okay, what else can we do with what we already have? Which was a great way of, sort of the way I approached the book, what can we build with what we have in our basket? And I created each one of those hearts is from the leftover yarn from the, um, the modern mango, from the arm warmers. Mm-hmm. And then the beads are the leftovers from the, the crocheted scarf. Um, we haven't mentioned, but it's just a very
0: openwork crocheted scarf in a very lovely gold ribbon that's fringed with um, little scallops of silver beads. It's the gilded mesh scarf. That's it. That's it. And those are the beads that are, are scalloping it
1: along the bottom of that one. So the that hanging project is an absolute example of, see, if you dig around, see what you can make.
0: I know you were saying about uh, using leftovers and also using... Perhaps things where something's gotten accidentally felted or you've had to felt something. You've got um, two different kinds of egg cozies in here, one of which are the cut and sew egg cozies.
1: It was a great opportunity to, it was gifted, we decided to throw in a few little small stone projects. Because I'm I known basically as a knitter, but I love to crochet, I love to sew, there's also a
0: few food ideas in there. Oh yes, that, that, that's another question. Yeah, <laughs> Later.
1: and it was just a way, this is this is what I normally do, I'm going to whip up something it's, and it's what I have time for and what I have around, and the egg toes, the, the cut and sew ones, I made a whole slew of them over the holidays for friends because they were old sweaters that had unfortunately been attacked by moths that I had felted. So I have this big Tupperware bin full of felted bits, and I cut up these sweaters to make these little egg cozies. I just thought they'd be sweet things. Once again, I live in a very cold climate for three months of the year, so things like egg cozies make great sense in the middle of January here. So I was looking them up and using them as, a, as an opportunity to use up all the scraps I had. I've gotten very conscious of how much my carbon footprint is and how much waste i make and how much i do not use things so i really try to reduce reuse and recycle as much as i can in everyday living and that includes in my making of things also
0: one of the things i love about these cushions so sew cozies is that they look like little wizard's hats because they're sort of they tall do. and pointy
1: they do they do they're very they're very sweet on their own you don't even have to use them i i know um, a friend of mine asked me to make a few so she could gift them because she didn't have time to make any. And she actually sent me a picture of uh, the intended having them on little, she had these little ceramic ducks on her shelf, <laughs> and they now sit as little hats on her ducks. So I mean, you know, if it's, not intent, I mean, if it's not an egg, it's fine, put it on a duck. That's fine by me, it's, as long as it brings joy, because that's, all in all, all you want is the intended to have joy with the gift that you give them. So there you go. Yes.
0: And as you were saying, there are recipes in the book as well for things like spicy Mexican hot chocolate yeah. is one of them.
1: Yes, that's one thing that we swear by around here yeah. and it's basic, just basic old hot chocolate, but there's a little bit of heat added with a bit of chili pepper and some cinnamon stick, so it's it's a grown-up version of hot chocolate, and I think once you try it, it's great. And the premise in the book, having a little of the food gift, is being able to offer up a little bag of, of say, the hot chocolate mix. So there's a couple of other um, mixtures that you can put in, and then adding maybe the, uh, a salted malaga, salted heart Milagro with it, or giving the hot chocolate with a pair of mittens. So it's just sort of like a little companion piece, and nothing takes much time. And most people can find, a lot of the even the, the recipes can find in their cupboards all the makings that you need for some of these simple food gifts.
0: I was just thinking the mittens and hot chocolate. It's almost like an extension of a hug, really, isn't it?
1: Exactly. That's exactly it. And with the, um, the tea cozy you were talking yes. about earlier, it's a, a great idea to maybe offer up some tea bags when you send that gift to someone. So it's like you're you're almost having a cup of tea with them. You can't necessarily be with everyone you want to have a cup of tea with, but sending the tea cozy and then a package of tea that you like, it just makes it a nice rounded gift, I think.
0: I did notice the introduction to the book, which you, you started off by saying that you love to make stuff. I think it's just a great term, this whole... Because I think we all, all of us sort of crafters, knitters, crocheters, creators listening to this, you know, we're all there because we do, we enjoy that whole pleasure of making. But how long have you been making things?
1: I have been making things for as long as I can remember, Mm. honestly. I have always made something out of whatever bits and pieces I have around me. So I can't remember a time when I wasn't making.
0: And when did you learn to knit?
1: The story that I'm sticking to is I learned to knit when I was five, but I refused to learn how to purl until I was 15. (laughs) I was stubborn. But the irony is now I much prefer purling over knitting because the way I throw with my thumb, I travel three times quicker purling than I do knitting. So there is is the revenge. Yes.
0: (laughs) Why did it take you so long to learn to purl, do you think?
1: I absolutely no idea, but between learning to knit and learning to purl, I was a big crocheter and a big embroider. So I yes. did not fill those ten years with nothing. Oh, no. <laughs> Lots of garter stitch scarves and a bunch of crocheted and, and embroidered things.
0: I could never purl when I was a child. That was the one thing I couldn't do with knitting. Well, I also couldn't cast off, but I just couldn't purl. And then I think uh, when I picked up my knitting needles again, which was about, um, oh, it was when I was 29, so nearly 10 years ago. I then taught myself how to purl with instructions off the internet. And I remember thinking, this isn't really that hard. Why did it take so long? Such a strange thing.
1: Maybe it is. There's something inherently overwhelming about purling. I have no idea, but do you enjoy purling now?
0: Um, I don't mind (laughs) it. So yeah so you've been knitting since you were five but when did that start to turn into designing and into a career?
1: I was always designing anything that I made. I very rarely used a pattern for anything I would knit or sew or crochet or anything. My mother didn't have patterns and I was taught how to knit, and it was by my mother. And the way she knit was, we would go through you know, a fashion magazine together, and we'd see a, a picture of a sweater that sort of attracted us. And they would go off to the yarn shop and buy some appropriate looking yarn. And then she would just cast on and go. Wow. But this is, this is a Northern European mother. So she just would look at a picture and go, OK, that's what we're making then. So that's the way I worked creatively all my life. And then when I started having an opportunity to write patterns for things I designed, I was sort of at a disadvantage because I didn't even know how to read a pattern, mm. let write a pattern. So I had to start following patterns and this was back in the 80s. I'm going to date myself. But this was back in the, in the 80s. And I had to start following written patterns and following it step by step and forcing myself not to do my own thing and forcing myself to make it look exactly like the picture so I could learn the concepts of writing patterns because there was really nowhere to go to a school or a course or anything at that point, at least where I was living. And um, then I started writing patterns.
0: See, that's just incredible because when I heard how you learned to knit and doing everything without patterns, I was just thinking, wow, how amazing to just be able to look at something that think, yeah, I'm doing that. And I suppose maybe that's because I've, I've come from with sewing and everything, with using a pattern.
1: See, I think this is – I don't want to get over-political at this point, but I do have a theory on – and it's, it's actually getting better now, and I think with, with um, knitting communities out there, I think there was a long time – where we felt that we had to follow a pattern because we had to do it right. Yes. We couldn't do it wrong. And I, fortunately or unfortunately, was raised in a way where there is no right or wrong. You just sort of do mm. it. There's like a fearlessness that you don't have to, if, if, as long as you're happy with the outcome, then it's right. You may follow a pattern perfectly. But if you're not happy with the outcome, if it doesn't fit right or it's not exactly as you anticipated it, then it's wrong, no matter how perfect it is. So I really do think there was a big chunk of time when um, we really felt we had to be right in following a pattern, whether it be sewing or knitting or crocheting. And I think now, in the past, oh, three or four years, I've really noticed a more loosening up or more of a, you know, I like that pattern, but I wanted. to do this neckline with it, yeah. and more of fearlessness, which I really appreciate, because there would be times when I'd be offering a workshop where someone would keep on asking me, well, is this right? Is this right? Am I doing this right? And I'm going, you know, if you're happy with it, then it's right. Well, exactly. That, that's all that matters, isn't it? Exactly. The way I do it, you know, someone would ask me, well, how do you do it? And I'm going, well, this is the way I do it, because it works for me. But you need not follow how I do it. Like try it if it works for you great or figure out a way that you like doing it that makes you happy. Because in the end, if you're not having fun making whatever it is you're making,
0: why bother? Yeah, you may just as well give up, mightn't you? I mean, that that whole fear of getting something wrong can be really disabling for people. And I think it's, well, it suppresses creativity because you feel that you can't go anywhere because you're just restricting yourself. And the one wonderful
1: thing about dealing with knitting and crocheting, and I've done this recently, I've been doing this, you aren't destroying the fiber as, say, with fabric. Once you cut that fabric, that fabric is cut. And then you are limited in what you can do. But in the last couple of months, back to this reducing, reusing, recycling, I've been digging through my closet of sweaters that I don't wear any longer and they're lovely yarn, and I've been ripping them down, frogging them, and then washing them, and skeining them, and hanging them to dry, and I have new yarn again. So anyone who's scared to do anything when it comes to knitting or crocheting, where's the fear? If you don't like it, you rip it out, and you start again. And I think there is far more of um, of an appreciation that we can do that with our craft. Unless you felt it, then, then well, you know, the, are <laughs> something else.
0: I was going to say, it's just slightly restricted <laughs> if you felt it. You can't but, unravel I, it, but you can do something else with it, yes.
1: <laughs> you can just tear it down and start all over again, and you get the joy of recreating with that same yarn that you loved the first time around. The happiness in it. <laughs>
0: I was going to say, that is one of the things I do love with knitting. It's like unlike life, where you can't always undo a mistake. You can always undo a mistake with knitting.
1: (laughs) exactly. Exactly. And then you make a cup of tea and start all over again.
0: Yeah. (laughs) What would you say are the hallmarks of a Mags Candice design, if there are any?
1: Uh, Well, I'm almost always told it's, it's Um, color, the way I put colors together it's very important to me I love playing with color I get excited to this day when I see colors playing off of each other in ways I've never seen before Um, definitely adding little embellishments and making them personalized by adding stitching or applique after the fact like once the, the project is off the needle is not necessarily the end of the project for me. I love doing more to it. And I would say that's probably what people would think of when they see a max canvas design.
0: To a lot of people, you are still closely associated with Mission Falls, even though you're no longer involved with the company. But how how did Mission Falls come about and how did you get involved with it?
1: Well, my standard line has always been we started. Me and my partner started Mission Falls because basically I had no marketable skills. So if I wasn't going to make my own business, I really wasn't going to go out and be able to be hired by anyone. But honestly, in 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 truth, it was I was involved with um, a company in Toronto, Canada at the time, and it was the Woolmark Bureau, and they were the wool marketers, the global wool marketers, and they gave me an opportunity of. Uh, making uh, an introduction to a company in Brazil that was producing yarn and was looking for a North American distributor. And it just happened at that moment, I was like, you know, this sounds like something I could do. Because at that time, I was doing ready-to-wear and small limited lines for um, better boutiques in uh, Canada. And I was being discontinued right, left, and center from yarn companies. And I would, you know, have a whole line and that was all ready to go, and I was already having it sold by my sales reps, and then I wasn't able to produce it because the yarn was not available, so I thought, what better way of making sure that I could have the yarn to produce what I wanted than uh, being a yarn distributor, and unfortunately, that is a whole big kettle of fish on its own,
0: Mm, so I
1: gave up the ready-to-wear and focused solely on um, making patterns and Uh, developing yarns and uh, having it available primarily in Canada to begin with and then it moved into the States and then it became global and then it was like a big big to do so yes it was the little yarn company that could
0: (laughs) and what kind of effect does that have on you? You know when you, you started thinking right well I'm going to have you know be my own distributor and then as you say it goes global and it's suddenly this big deal well I mean,
1: it's a wonderful thing. It's thing was, when we started Mission Falls, which was almost 20 years ago now, it's like 18 years that we started the label, no one was really knitting. We started when there was maybe one yarn shop of any note in any major city, and it was a very small, hard slog, small company, hit the floor running every day, and then we exploded with the explosion of... Uh, knitting and crocheting and crafting that happened in the 90s and then proceeded on into the year 2000 and it was just a a crazy uphill roller coaster so um, it was a wonderful opportunity but at the time when we sort of grew to a size that was not what we wanted, we liked having a small little company and running it in a small sort of I don't want to say controlled way, but you had a manageable way of running the company. And it was all of a sudden, yarns were being, you know, um, backlogged because of dyeing problems. And our orders were so massive, they were overwhelming. It was a very tough time for a while there when we grew to the point where it was not fun anymore. So that's how uh, we got to the point where we decided that we were going to close up and it wasn't fun anymore. We weren't waking up every morning being happy to be at Mission Falls, which was what we wanted. Then we decided to close our doors, but uh, at that time CNS Yarns, a company in Montreal, was looking to get into hand knitting yarn and they uh, contacted us and we worked out an arrangement where they licensed, and they have been for the past five years, licensed
0: the the use of our name and uh, they've continued on with the Mission Falls label. That must be quite an emotional thing, that when something starts out as your baby, and then it's no longer bringing you pleasure anymore.
1: Well, it's true, but after a while, honestly, it it was many years that you have to think back that it was a baby. Mm -hmm. It really was, was a business. And the things that I enjoyed about the business was the designing part. And I'm still able to do that. And it's just nice knowing, I guess if you want to think of it as a child, it went on and it went off to university. And it's doing just fine. (laughs)
0: That's a great analogy.
1: God, it's gone. Now we take that room and turn it into my room. (laughs) So it really wasn't hard um, at the time. It was the one wonderful thing of being basically unemployable, but I I had the skills is that I'm very used to creating my own um, way of employment and I love what I'm doing now and uh, I like the prospect of not having to be tethered to one big concern, which Shin Paul's was. And now I can do lots of little things that bring me great joy and inspire me to do even different things.
0: Now, talking of different things, I know you recently started a blog. How did you get into blogging?
1: I was basically a, like a lot of people, a lot of designers that I know got into it. They originally got into it as a way of marketing. I mean, you have to say that it, because I'm really quite a private person. I don't want people to really know everything about me, but there's certain parts of my life that I love being able to share, and it's the making of stuff. And I also really enjoy being able to share. Other websites or other designers or quite often I'll share a book that I've I've recently bought that may or may not have anything to do directly with knitting but usually has something to do with design and I think it's a great opportunity to be able to keep in touch with people that enjoy my work and as I said it started off sort of as a marketing tool but now it's a sort of a a great way of like I said communicating with people that I know enjoy not only what I knit, but also possibly what I sew or garden or cook. I'm trying to stay away from the food thing. There's yeah. so many blogs do food. I started food for a while. I'm a big foodie. I love to eat. I love to oh, make Oh, you should
0: blog about food.
1: Oh, Everybody please, Like <laughs> like It's, it's like go you know, to this food blog. And it's like I did, I think, maybe two or three blogs about food. And I went, oh, my, everybody's dog It does food blog so i will i'll take it under advisement but don't hold your breath it probably
0: see i i'd I'd say mix it in with everything else rather than separating it into a separate blog mm, because that way you're not tied to it you know if you feel like blogging about food then you blog about food and if you know and if you don't you don't you blog about something else and your readers who are interested in you anyway will still go off the ride (laughs)
1: I'll I'll share with you something between you and me. Don't tell anyone. I am actually starting another blog on Sunday, July 25th. I'm doing, and it's been done before, but it's a photo a day. And the reason I'm choosing that day to start, it is my 49th year of living. So I'm documenting my 49th year. Yes, I know I only look 29, (laughs) especially especially on the Internet. I look 29 but uh, I, I, I just thought, no, I'm not big on birthdays, but this is my 49th year, and I thought, dang it, I'm just going to work on my photographic skills. It's a, a great way of forcing myself to practice. I bought a, a new camera just recently, and I've got to figure out how to, it's not just a point and shoot. So I will be doing a blog. And maybe some food pictures will happen up on that <laughs> blog because I do a lot of eating. I do a lot of eating and a lot of making of food. So, And I do like taking pictures of food for my own personal enjoyment. When I travel, there's mostly pictures of food that I come home with. So thank God uh, my partner usually takes the the big landscapes and the broad pictures, and I'll take like the, the close-up of the, of the tapas that we just ate, but I can't remember where it was taken. <laughs> well,
0: that so, sounds yeah, great.
1: So it, it is. It's fun.
0: It's good. No, and I think that just sounds like such, yeah, a really good idea. You know, I did try once thinking, oh, I'll take a picture a day, and I, I don't think I could even do it for three days.
1: <laughs> yeah, this is where I thought I was awfully brave announcing it with you. Yeah. But no, i can do it. I'm... Dang it, I'm going to do it.
0: I do like the name of your blog, which I'm, again, going to mispronounce. My wabi... No, I'm going to have to get you to say it.
1: (laughs) It's my wabi-sabi country life. And wabi-sabi is a Japanese aesthetic, which is basically, in a nutshell, finding perfection in imperfection, finding beauty in nothingness. And I am a big big celebrator of oh if it if it's perfect it's just it's just wrong. So I love (laughs) finding perfection in my imperfection in in everything that I do.
0: That's I was gonna say that's very much like you know with the um Persian carpets. They always put a floor in. And I remember with um raku, which is a Japanese form of pottery, with that Again, if you make a mistake while you're doing it, it was meant to be, and you've got to leave that in. It mustn't be perfect. Mm-hmm.
1: And the Amish always put a square in wrong in one of their quilts. And, and it's, I mean, it, it's it's not, it's it's just, once again, it's going almost back to that conversation where we had, where there was a time where people had to knit perfect projects. Mm-hmm. And just, and they would point out the flaws as if it were a horrible thing. See, I, I, I messed up that <laughs> stitch. And, oh, okay. Oh, See, that cable's crossed the wrong way. And I'm going, then it's perfect. Celebrate that. Yeah. You know, it, it's just <laughs> wear a badge of honor because no one's perfect and we're just driving ourselves crazy trying to be perfect. So just fall into the arms of imperfection.
0: I love the Frida Kahlo pictures on your blog. Mm. Mm. I love Frida. Oh, and you've been and to I her think- house. I'm so jealous. Yeah.
1: Yes, it is in a suburb of... Um, of Mexico City and it's a wonderful bohemian neighborhood it's, it's bohemian now and it was bohemian when her and Diego Rivera lived there and it is it was it was it was overwhelming I find her a, a fascinating person I'm so glad she's finally getting the the notoriety that she has in the past ten or so years I, I was also fortunate I was traveling we were a couple of winters ago we were down in Florida getting warm And we were driving home and on the way home we happened to find out that the Frito Keller exhibit was happening in Philadelphia and we were driving right past Philadelphia so I was able to catch a show with one of the most complete collections of her work and it was just awe-inspiring and everything about her just drives me crazy. I'm a, a, a northern European-bred Canadian gal who would love to be Latin and Mexican and fiery and live a life that she has with long, fabulous braids and colorful headgear. and oh, she, she is just an inspiration to me.
0: Yes, I was going to say her colors are your colors, if mm, you think of your definitely. designs. Yeah.
1: And I have a very large, uh, and I mentioned it on, on my one of my blog postings a roboso collection. Roboso is a is a Mexican Mexican wrap. It's a, usually an oblong shaped wrap. It could be various lengths and it's made out of primarily wool or cotton. And I have an embarrassing large collection of robosos. And I know Frida Carlo did also, so I'm just I I'm just sort of mimicking her in, in wrapping myself in beautiful textiles from Mexico. Wow.
0: Well what an inspiration yeah. Oh, just out sort of interest, uh, what did you think of the uh, film that was made, Frida, with uh, Selma Hayek, and I think it was uh, Alfred Molina?
1: It was good. I enjoyed. I enjoyed it. But I, I think it be. I think it's really hard to. I think that it was a very good job was done. And um, one of the um, musical performers in the movie who contributed to the soundtrack is one of my favorite American Mexican singers. Her name is Lila Downs. Anyone who hasn't heard her, you must look up Leela Downs and you'll be mesmerized by beautiful music. But uh, the movie w- was fine. I enjoyed it. I would watch it again. But I really enjoyed the soundtrack and, and uh the a celebration of Frida's life.
0: Yeah, I've got it on DVD, but I haven't actually watched it yet. And I bought it. It must have been about five years ago or something. Oh, so, I, yes, I have to get to it with that.
1: Well, there you go, and then blog
0: about it. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Or comment on my blog about yeah, it. Yeah, I'll comment on your blog. We can <laughs> comment on each other's. Also, just want to put an editorial note in here. If anyone can hear any water in the, my background, it's not, I'm not having a shower during this interview. It's just started pouring with rain. It's amazing what does get picked up on the microphone. So, Mags, what's next with you? Obviously, you've got this book that's out now. Well, what happens next after that?
1: Well right now I'm just waiting for, like the book is just beginning to trickle out now and I am actually working on some pieces that I'm trying to put up on my website and I'm really just designing things that I love to be designing and I've got my fingers in some other pots that I really can't talk to freely about at this point but if you follow me on my blog you'll learn some things over the next few months of what I'm up to.
0: The fabulous Mags Candice Now, I have a copy of her new book, Gifted, to give away. Here's what you need to do in order to enter. Head on over to knitcast.com and leave a comment in the show notes. I'll leave the comments open until September 1st, when the competition closes. The winner will be chosen using a random number generator, and I'll announce their name first on the blog and secondly in the October podcast. For UK listeners, Search Press are offering £2 off the cover price when you order the book from them using a special code, which you'll find again in the show notes. Some of you have signed up to my email update list on Yahoo. Well, I'm changing from Yahoo to an email sent out by FeedBurner, so you'll need to subscribe to the new service if you wish to receive updates. Now, the link to the new service will be over on nickcast.com. Well, I'm Maria Urshad. And that was Nickcast. Thanks for listening.